Welcome to the Generation Poetry Podcast, Episode 4. Today, we go dark side. We're talking about fear, threats, shadows. The voice of futurist Brian David Johnson. I was, I was stunned because you said it's so satisfying to hear that sound, and then I, I didn't hear it. Yeah, I'm still here. Is he gone? Okay. Oh, okay. psychology of the creative eye. Art, the visual perception. This is from page 20. Why balance? Why is pictorial balance indispensable? It must be remembered that visually, as well as physically, balance is a state of distribution in which all action has come to a standstill. Potential energy in the system, says the physicist, has reached the minimum. In balanced composition, all such factors as shape, direction, and location are mutually determined in such a way that no change seems possible, and the whole assumes the character of necessity in all its parts. An unbalanced composition looks accidental, transitory, and therefore invalid. Its elements show a tendency to change the place or shape in order to reach a state that better accords with the total structure. Under conditions of imbalance, the artistic statement becomes incomprehensible. The ambiguous pattern allows no decision on which of the possible configurations is meant. We have the sense that the process of creation has been accidentally frozen somewhere along the way. Since the configuration calls for change, the stillness of the work becomes a handicap. Timelessness gives way to the frustrating sensation of arrested time, except for the rare instances in which this is precisely the effect the artist intends. He will for the balance in order to avoid such instability. Of course, balance does not require symmetry. Symmetry in which, for example, the two wings of a composition are equal in the most elementary manner of creating equilibrium. More often, the artist works with some kind of inequality. And what about Greco's paintings of the Annunciation? The angel is much larger than the Virgin, but this symbolic disproportion is compelling only because it is fixated by counterbalancing factors Otherwise, the unequal size of the two figures would lack finality and therefore meaning. It is only seemingly paradoxical to assert that this equilibrium can be expressed only by equilibrium, just as disorder can only be shown by order or separateness by connection. I'm Brian David Johnson. I'm a futurist. I work with organizations to look 10 years out into the future and model both positive and negative futures and then figure out what those organizations need to do five, 10 years from now to move towards that future they want and away from the future they want to avoid. I'm a professor 
at Arizona State University, as well as the director of the threat casting lab there. It really wasn't a thing. There were journalists and you had people like Alvin Toffler and people like that who were doing it, but they were more writers. They weren't really applied futurists, which is really what I consider myself. I not only model the future, but I work with organizations to then go and build it. And that's really, as you were alluding to, Julie, my background as a, as a designer and also understanding uh, coding and system architecture. So I was really this odd mix between, you know, kind of understanding design, but then also under, understanding engineering and complex systems. I think when, when we worked together, I was called a consumer experience architect. I was an, an architect of, of experiences for consumers. And that really, I think for me, helped bring together all of the different things that I had studied and work that I had done. So the, the systems architecture work I had done for the government when I just got out of college, but then at the same time, you know, my work as a science fiction author, um, as well as a I'm working at a design agency that helped to design set-top boxes for the UK and Scandinavia. So it really was this sort of coming together of all these things that I had been doing for many, many years. And it really kind of landed at Intel because because Julie, as you know, at Intel, it takes about five to 10 years for them to design, develop, and deploy a chip. So they needed to know what people wanted to do with a computer 10 years from now so they could start spending billions of dollars building fabs to go and do it. And that really kind of tapped into all my different expertise and background. I love talking to my students now when they talk about, you know, human-computer interaction as if it's like a thing. And it is a thing. But yeah, back when we were doing it, we were inventing the thing. Um, and people thought we were crazy because they had never really thought or, or gave to gave two shakes about how humans and computers would interact. These things, you have a keyboard, that's how you would interact. So yeah, it was definitely cutting a new trail back then. The area of sort of the inter intersection between technology and entertainment, that's what really made me at Intel, right? I mean, the, we did, did this project, right, looking at the future of TV back in 2004, 2005, looking off to the far off future of 2015. And uh, I remember going and presenting out, and Julie, uh, you were probably in the room, right, when we were there with all of Intel's corporate executives from the CEO on down. I remember presenting out saying this crazy thing that, hum that human beings 10 years from now will be watching movies on their phone. And this was before the iPhone. They almost asked me to leave the room. And that's where Justin Ratner, who was the CTO at the time, pulled me aside and said, you really pissed a lot of people off in that room. Keep going. And that, and that, that was the thing that sort of then so I, I would sort of let go to kind of go and really, um, really push not only the, the research in that area, and like Julie was saying, taking from the human-computer interaction work that we're doing, but really pushing it to sort of understand what the experience would be, what it would feel like to be a human 10 years in this far off future of 2015, and what would it feel like to live with technology and entertainment? And that was really that project. Turned into a book called Screen Future. Well, it really, <clears throat> as with most things, it starts with the people. Um, so it was you, it was Massey, it was getting to know Jeff. For me, everything's about people. You know, that's what most entrepreneurs and startup people will tell you, any good manager will tell you, it's always about people. So that's why I sat down in the lobby of a hotel in London, because Julie, you and Massey said, hey, we want to talk to you about something. And we sat down and we started talking and you started telling me what you were discovering. The way that we started talking and the way we started talking about where this next generation was going and where the future could be going, it was so fresh and new and exciting and frightening. And oftentimes we didn't even have the language to talk about it. Um, and that for me is where I know there's good things. It's where I find things that not I haven't heard before, because part of my job is to constantly be sensing and constantly be going out there. But when you find projects or you find data or you find research that completely reframes how you look at the world 
not only today, but how you look at the world and it reframes the potential for the future. And that to me is what this project does. And in the meantime, like I said, I was building robots and I was、um, working on this project called 21st Century Robot, which was coming up with a way for kids to really change how they imagine, design, and build robots and coming up with a system and, and technologies for them to do that. And so I had just started writing and I knew I wanted to write for like smart 13 year olds. How could we write it? Because we really wanted to tap into the imagination of kids. So there were these two kind of parallel things going on. And then、uh, Will gave me a call and he's like, they're telling me this idea about this crazy story spanning centuries about wizards and robots and, and medieval castles. And it was, it was really fun. And so I flew down to LA on Halloween actually, and we mapped out all of the books. We wrapped up the Entire story and started writing it and had the first draft completed by January. We were excited about it. We had no idea what we were going to do about it. Of course, we didn't have a book deal, none of that thing. There was nothing posh and big and celebrity oriented. No, it was just two guys who were really having a good time writing a story. It was my experience writing 21st Century Robot, which was published by Make and the sort of maker movement that I got interested in that. And then Will, of course, is a huge philanthropic side. And so he does a lot of work with kids and certainly a lot of work with kids in his old neighborhood, but now kids, you know, all over the world. And so. Um, you talk about this young adult audience. We kind of thought to ourselves, "Hey, we need to really push this story to the next generation and do it in such a way so that they see themselves as the heroes, so that they see themselves as the people who are going to save the world." And that's why we made our main character Ada Luring, named after Ada Lovelace and Alan Turing, a mashup of their names. That's why, because we wanted these specifically these young ladies. To see themselves as the heroes, and we made her mom like the top one of the top roboticists in the world, and of course we made it fun and century spanning and all that type of stuff. And but it really was about the kind of next generation. The the subtitle of the book is it's called Wizards and Robots: New Generation Rising. Two middle-aged dudes writing young adult was really interesting and really fun and really challenging to try to get it right. And so we released it and went on book tour. It was incredible. And at first you kind of get used to it when you hang out with Will because he's just so crazy famous that people come running up and. They want to take their picture, or they want they want to say how much they enjoy him. But not on the book tour. They would come running up, and they'd have the book in their hands, and they would say, "Because of you, I want to be a theoretical physicist." And Will and I would look at each other, and I'd look back at them and go, "Because of you, I'm about to cry." We have this generation that you're talking about doing,、um, you know, video book re- reviews.、Uh, we hear them talking about, it, and I've never met them, and they're talking about the things that Will and I were talking about the whole five years that we had been writing this book together. And to see that is just so humbling. So that that to me is the power of story. So I'm a mix of an engineer and a designer. Right? I'm a writer. I'm a painter. I'm an engineer. I've got over 40 patents. I'm a member of engineering societies. So my whole career and what I do as a futurist. There's no distinction. This this notion between technology and creativity, or people who are engineers or people who are artists, this I think is actually at best silly and at worst actually quite detrimental to the mental models of how we think about doing interdisciplinary work. So I think that distinction is is quite wrongheaded. And so I really do think it's that whole brain approach, and that's why I would go back and why I love this generation poetry is because poetry is that mix. To me, I when I write stories and the structures of stories, to me I think of them as system architectures. I Actually, map them out like a system architecture, like I would do for a set-top box or a smartphone application. I do it the exact same way, and then I fill in with the creativity, with the ability to kind of think that through. But even creating that system architecture is is creative. So I really do think we need that whole brain approach, and that's also what poetry does. Poetry is very structured sometimes, but also at the same time has full of the sort of flower of language and the double and triple meanings that exist inside of that. So for me, it's that whole brain approach. I think that's exactly right, Jeff. I think. 
I've been kind of taking a, a page from Generation Poetry and practicing non-binaryism in almost, I, I kind of force it onto all of my thinking. And it's really, to me, it's, an, it's a really interesting flip, much like in some of our initial conversations that we've been talking about, uh, the work that the project has been doing, I've been really kind of applying it, which, you know, you can apply it to this, where it, it could be both, it could be the same, it doesn't really matter. But I do think part of it, Jeff, you're right, is sort of how it's articulating kind of what you're told. And I, I, you made me think of an example back in my, my 21st century robot project. As I mentioned, this is a new way of building social robots, basically. What we did is, you know, for many, many years, we designed these robots in science fiction. So we wrote science fiction stories and imagined what it would be like to act interact with these robots before you could build them. But when we were doing it, we came up with this manifesto basically in this system and so what we would do is we would go to these schools in, in new york city that didn't even have computer labs and we would go in with this project and sit, sit down with the students and say okay we're going to build a robot and they look terrified i think in previous generations um threat was a specter right in the old victorian sense right it was a specter where it was kind of floating out there, right? The, 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 the Soviet menace, the specter and, you know, the doom of, of nuclear war. It was, it was this thing and it was very tense and, and not putting down on it at all, lived through it. He was scared to death, right? Uh, that these things were gonna happen. But in the time that we live right now, these threats aren't specters. These threats are walking through into your math class with a gun. Like it is very different. And technology and our communication certainly have afforded a, a front row seat even a, a real-time connection to what's going on. And these threats have really come from being sort of somewhat ethereal, still very scary, but to something that is very, very real. And that doesn't have to mean just school shooters. I mean, this generation has seen the primary communication tool of their parents weaponized. They've seen Facebook. Um, and what, what has happened to these social media platforms um, and it's not just Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's all these other, you name it, it's been out there that these, I think you had a previous generation that thought that these were all benign and that these were actually going to save the world. And it, it turns out that these are all threats um, and have been used by bad actors. Um, and these aren't specters, they're on your phone. They're there. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're laughing through the terror and the horror. Yeah, it's um, it's so visceral, I think, and that sort of that connection, and you also see begin to see that that with this generation, them stepping away from social media, right? That you see people stepping off of Facebook, you see it redefining. Even some of the statistics show that you know the this coming generation values physical things, actually books. Books are back, baby. So it's um, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think we're at this time where coming from the 20th century into the 21st century in this tide of the PC revolution, the internet revolution, and the mobile revolution, right? It is really reshaped, certainly it's reshaped our society, and we've talked about that. People have talked about it ad nauseum. Only recently have we started having these conversations about the threats, about what it means, and the dark side of that. And that's one of the reasons actually I stepped down as a chief futurist at Intel to start this threat casting lab as we began to see what we need to envision these. It's, it's We need to think about what could go wrong. There's nothing wrong with thinking about these dark futures, but then you can actually start taking action against them. And this is also with that generation, I think, is beginning to see that. They are slowly becoming turned on and flipped on that they can take action against these threats, but you have to be able to envision them. And you have a previous generation that said to themselves, oh my gosh, I never thought anybody would use this in that way.
right? You have executives from Silicon Valley companies sitting in front of the United States Congress saying that, okay, we understand that. And coming up from the, that generation of builders as well, myself included, now granted I had been working in threats for a while, but I do think that there's a responsibility there that you can't say that. Anymore. And so I think in that way, that this generation coming up is has steeled against that, right? That notion of, of stealing oneself against um, fear. Um, I do a lot of work in fear, <laughs> doing running a threat casting lab. Um, and that's one of the things that people, you can go and look at, whether it be first responders or people in the military, when you do training, one of the things, how they, um, right? Fear is a, is a physical, mental, visceral reaction that we have in us, that it's going to happen. Right? You will just be afraid. And what they teach these individuals as they're training them is how to steel themselves against it. So they go through drills. They go through being scared to death. They go through being thrown out of planes. They go through nearly drowning. They go through all these different things as a training to steel themselves against it. So when something does happen, they've been here before. I certainly never hope your, your son ever has to see a beheading or be anywhere near that, but he's been here before. Um, and there's mm -hmm. power. There's power in that. Um, now, I think it needs to be purposeful and that it's not being a voyeur, a voyeur. It's actually, you want to actually then take action against it. But that's one of the things I've been very excited about. One of the things that in my work in my threat casting lab, um, currently doing work in um, uh, disinformation, misinformation, fake news, information warfare, if you will, um, and looking at what happens when the truth no longer equals the truth? And this is things like deep fakes and fake news and all that. But one of the things in the research that we've been doing, and really actually, Julie, because of the, the work from Generation Poetry and some of the early results that you've had, thinking about that actually, that this generation has lived in a post-truth world. That this generation mm -hmm. has grown up their entire lives, even before they were born, have been documented on Facebook or on the internet. And they know that that's not them. That's not their truth. That's not true. That's their parents' crafting of their narrative. And especially as they start to come, as they start to come of age, they start to realize, well, that's not me. And I know, I believe, Julie, you've even pulled some things of saying you've had people who've done some writings and some young people who've sort of talked about this that they're actually upset. They're like, I didn't give you permission to do that. So they understand that truth is malleable. And so for me, who better? Who better to combat this world where you could be shown a video that is showing you something that is 100% not true and it looks 100% real. That I think actually this generation is steeled against that and understand and they're really poised to take action. And I think that's, to bring it back to generation poetry, I think it's, it's just that. And so let me pause a moment. So there's a mental model that I have used for well over a decade now in thinking about threats and thinking about these sort of dark spaces and technology in general. And what I tell people is you can't build a hammer that is sufficient enough to build a house that is also not sufficient enough to bash somebody's head in. We're all not walking around with hammers in our heads. Why? Well, it's because we have culture and we have ethics and norms and laws that surround us as human beings that say, hey, bashing somebody's head in is not cool or illegal or bad or wrong. And I think that's the thing that we forget when it comes to these technologies. And it comes to really anything from government. It can be local government, national government, military, it doesn't matter. That there's always going to be threats, right? You're always going to be, there's always that flip side. But it's up to us as human beings to create those cultures and norms to say what we accept. 
and what we don't accept and what's cool and what's not cool and what's acceptable. And I think that's what this generation is starting to do. Um, and that's what also what I really hope from this project is that we start to give it a platform, give them a voice to start to document it so that we can start to make that culture change because we certainly need it and we're just at the beginning of it. My name is Julie Jensen Bennett. And I'm Massi Tedeschi. And today we are going to talk about maybe some of the darker things going on in Generation Poetry. We've spoken a lot about things like kindness and political action and happiness and all of the ways in which this generation is maybe taking a much more mature view of the world, maybe than other teenagers have in the past, and all of the maybe the opportunity and the hope that that gives us for the future. But the truth is there's some there's some serious questions and dark sides and um, things that we need to think about. In a talk that I often give about the project, I talk about how this is a generation that's grown up from the comfort of their bedrooms, watching real people be murdered and watching real people make porn. And, you know, we can go into a bit of a moral panic about that. Say, what have we done to our children? We've destroyed their innocence. But that doesn't change the fact that they that's the reality. Um, and, you know, we also see huge potential for things on social media, for abuse and cruelty and unkindness. So I suppose my, my first question or thought was like, we spoke about kindness, what about cruelty? What is, mm. what is cruelty? And, and how do we make sense of cruelty in, in, in this generation? I think, first of all, I think cruelty is... Um, I don't remember when I heard this word, uh, actually, because it's such an underused word, and uh, somehow... I think we are a country very uncomfortable. I think cruelty together with death are the darker side, because they actually t tap so much into human nature that we are uh, quite unwilling to address them in general. And I think anything that is disowned, uh, Jung says, things that are disowned go down in the basement and they start lifting weight, right? So they become so much more toxic, so much more dangerous. And most of all, because we are, uh, they are not under our direct gaze, they can pervert, they can become something that literally start escaping our understanding. And the consequences of things that escape our understanding are, of course, huge. So I think actually just to set the scene, I think that's a problem with cruelty in general. I really find very interesting what you say because I think this idea of uh, being um, 
understanding the world from the comfort of your bedroom is one of the key issues that older generation blame generation, younger generation for, with this idea of narcissistic, which in a way, to a certain definition of narcissism, it does make sense, you know, it's all about me, it's all about my space, it's all about my world. And again, I think in that respect, that idea of being in your comfort zone, looking outside, give less of a relationship with the outside world. It's not because of technology, I think. I mean, technology, as we often say, is just a vehicle. But the moment I am comfortable, I can look at the world, in a way I feel very attached, you know, I can look at the world without fearing that much. So my sense of uh, what I can say, what I cannot say, what I can watch, what I cannot watch, actually becomes quite different. So I'm, in a way I'm saying not being part of it um, allows me more cruelty in many ways. So I have an element of detachment. And I think in that respect, the medium and the difference between real and virtual really, we, again, is something that we don't mention often as a cause, but I think it is part of the cause of the new type of cruelty. So what is the new type of cruelty that I see in Generation Poetry? And I say new type because I... I think historically I haven't seen quite in this articulation. And it's this idea of uh, alienated cruelty. I don't remember what we said. We used the word. <laughs> anonymous. 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 Anonymous cruelty. So is which is quite different because it's uh, the perpetrator is uh, hiding. So the perpetrator is not taking responsibility. And you see it in, in comments. I mean, I, I mentioned before in our sort of pre-conversation, I'm kind of amazed and appalled at the same time of the harshness and, uh, and uh, absolutely despicability of some of the comments that you see on video. I mean, it's not unusual to see you should die, all your family should die. These are not things that a person would entertain as a thought, I mean, even less so to say it to other people unless you are objectifying your reality and unless you feel in a place of so much comfort and anonymity that that words have almost no meaning for you. You are hiding. Other people that are, for example, on YouTube, they're not hiding, so they are real people, but you don't sense the connection. And that is a completely different game for me when it comes to cruelty. And we see the effect. The effect seems really strange when we look at, when we, you know, all the generations see and hear of, people that have been bullied online, you know, attempting suicide or committing suicide, it's kind of difficult to gauge, you know, why something that is so innocent in a way, what is a comment, has such a power. Because comments are really so mean and cruel that are only designed to hurt people. They're not designed by, for anything else. It's literally pure cruelty. Like, I don't know, taking a small animal and killing him. It, it, that's cruelty. That's not, it's not anger, it's not meanness, it's pure cruelty. It's the pleasure of being mean to somebody. And this is not a moral judgment on generation poetry or any generation, but it's an observation. That's also part of the mix of the code in which they are growing up. Yeah, I think, I think you, you make a very important point there, is that cruelty is nothing new. We, you know, human beings have taken pleasure in creating pain in other people since time began, and we know that children and teenagers are particularly adept Absolutely. at being cruel to one another. But what, what's changed is that degree of, of detachment and, that anonymity. and, 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 and anonymity. Um, that the cruelty 
happens within, but also what struck me as you're talking is also the degree of real exposure and vulnerability that people are putting themselves. The flip side of the detachment is that people's expressions of themselves online, they're putting much more of themselves out there mm. than previous generations mm. would as well. So the level of kind of the, the soft underbelly that's being exposed is much... It, I, would, I would say yeah. if we take a sort of bird eye view, it's a perverse gain. Mm -hmm. There's an element of perversion. So although the temptation and a way to read it is to say there are innocent people presenting themselves and there are cruel people attacking them. In a way, it's also probably true. There's also a perversion in that game. There's almost a masochistic pleasure. Again, I don't want to make generalization on behavior of a generation or anybody, but it's really difficult not to see this dance having some form of pleasure. Mm. It, it does create a form of entertainment. Um, you cannot post and be vulnerable continuously with this kind of cruelty against you without somehow finding some masochistic pleasure. This, again, I want to say it again, it doesn't discount victim and perpetrator. There are perpetrator and victim. But I, I cannot imagine that vulnerability and betray trust will lead to repeating the same behavior over and over. Mm. So, and, and I think in that respect, that perversion is uh, something, this type of game, in my opinion, in such a large scale, it's a new game, it's a new game of pleasure. Because, you know, sadism and masochism, they've been linked to sexuality for a long time. And I think there's a little bit in that exchange, there is some form of um, visceral pleasure. It's quite unspoken. Um, I think it's more observable in behavior than in conversation that I had with Generation Poetry. Mm. Can you tell me a few of those observations? Yeah, as I said, I think, um, I think for me, is this kind of almost showing the weaker side. It's not just... Uh, people talking of themselves or putting themselves out there, I actually see a genuine uh, and probably an attempt to be more themselves, but almost revealing a wound. Mm. Uh, and revealing a wound is in uh, talking about their fragility, um, showing, for example, themselves as being non-conventionally, um, I don't know, attractive or the right way or... Um, and sometimes impersonating these characters that are uh, almost attracting criticism. And again, it's not justifying criticism, but is this self-representation in such a vulnerable way that I think is a bit of a, in a funny way, it's a little bit of a proof that there is a kind of perversion more than the people that are cruel. So you almost see it more in the people that offer their wound to be picked and to be to be played with than the people that do it. Is no, it's interesting because we're actually Terrible. thinking. Yeah, no, we are thinking, but we're thinking. Know, isn't, isn't superior thinking? Yeah, but yeah, keep we'll, going. But we'll see. We'll, we'll see where it yeah. goes. Yeah, um, we have to be open to experimentation. Is the the thought that sprang to mind while you were talking about the wound and picking the wound is. Is, is part of the, 
is part of the perversion a a sense that in order to deserve the kindness that they're asking for you have to be hurt first or that there's that, that there's a degree of of earning the not just the so you 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 expose yourself you to the cruelty you get the pain you get the wound but then that means you're worthy of the kindness and of the love and the the backpats as well of that's a thought yeah <laughs> i'm not too sure how to comment on that yeah it's, it's actually it, it, quite a novel thought for me that um i mean in term of you know that you are defined the very uh, meaning of perversion, right? You are saying that's perverted, right? To have, in order to achieve something positive, going through a ne negative experience is perverse. I haven't thought of it, I have to say in these terms, but I can see a bit what you mean in, um, again, if you have the cruel people, you have also the people that are supporting you and the people that almost unconditionally accept you still virtually so it is actually I can see how the game can create a form of perverse pleasure where unless you have the cruelty you cannot have the pleasure of kindness and you can maybe not experience kindness at all because kindness actually is really difficult to experience in real life you know, an act of kindness, we tend to remember quite strongly, right? You know, an act of kindness. There are, I, I see on BuzzFeed, article on, you know, the 10 act of kindness you should try to do, you know, once every day or whatever. So it's actually something that doesn't come too natural to us. And I think it's because being kind is very, you know, it's by definition very vulnerable. I put myself in a position of uh, not necessarily power or control. So I can see this, I, I find this, uh, the, your observation really interesting because I think that's maybe a better way to look at the perversion that is intrinsic in this little game of cruelty that I think we're observing, observing and talking about today. But also I think another aspect of it that is quite fascinating is this juxtaposition of uh, a kind attitude and a cruel attitude within the same uh, span of time or situation. And we know we have talked about, uh, we've written about kindness and we know how kindness is uh, something that young generation embrace even as a word. So it's actually a mission, the mission of being kind. And at the same time, there is this cruel side to it, almost compartmentalized. And this compartmentalization and looking at aspect of ourself in an objectified way, I think is something not necessarily typical of this generation, but something that Western society has really fostered. You know, we look at our body, we look at, you know, things, our money, we look at as part of us, not as the whole. And I think this attitude somehow has permeated in the young generation and the, the ability to isolate and compartmentalize I think has something to do with what we observe in this uh, kindness and cruelty living in the same person if you make any sense. No that makes that makes a lot of sense to me and I think also this this sense of uh, detachment that was that we're mm. speaking about mm. that you know on the positive side this move towards a more detached view of the world allows mm. a bird's eye view. It allows broader understanding of the situation, consideration of multiple points of view, uh, a, a, this, you know, at a functional level, like kind of a meta mm. perspective, mm. and at a spiritual level, possibly even transcendence mm. of, 
of many issues that that we experience but detachment has a numbness to it right i completely agree and in in certain ways the um it feels like the the cruelty and the kindness become ways of feeling mm. um of 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 immersing mm. back into back into the feeling of the situation when but you see in put that way is um almost like a paraphilia, it's almost like a fetish, it's almost like, again, a perversion. It's not something that I desire and enact, it's something that I desire and I divert this place into something else. So literally what you say is that the antidote to detachment is being attached and in sync with your emotion. A substitute of that is actually, for example, you get it in pornography. So it's a not love making is not exchanging with another person is a fantasy of it which in a psychoanalytical term is a displacement so i have a need i displace the need in something that is actually more achievable than actually going to fulfill my need food is a typical one you know i feel very upset i feel very angry i open the fridge i eat and i don't i don't want the food i want to feel cared for but i get the food so that's form of displacement I think is a bit what we see in this idea of kindness and cruelty. And uh, and I agree with you. I think there is a vicarious way to feel. So it's not a feeling firsthand, but it's the best or the closest thing to feeling. And again, we touched upon pornography, and I think this is really interesting because, you know, the generation, the generation of generation poetry, generation poetry has grew up with this availability of a certain view of sexuality. I, I, I think, you know, in... Episode three, you and Betty talk about us being in the midst of a great social experiment. Mm. And in that conversation, largely regarding social media mm. uh, as, a, as a form of technology. But uh, from my perspective, and certainly as a, as a mother, I've, I've wondered a lot more about this experiment of raising this generation mm. on, on pornography mm. as, as being much more potentially interesting and mm. having long-term ramifications than our experiment with social media and if you absolutely and if you think about it when we talk, when i talk when we talk about with generation poetry we are kind of i'm always quite amazed by the lack of what appears to be a lack of a lack of sexual drive and often and i think we said it before often the element of lust is uh, understood at meta level as being an element of gender so through lust i can express my gender i, expre I can express my idea so sexuality becomes a way to express who i am rather than a lustful or love oriented activity so to speak um so we actually notice that but at the same time uh there is a strong consumption of porn, which becomes a thing in itself. So porn is not the surrogate for not getting the girl, is his own, is his own pleasure. <laughs> he has his own dynamic. Uh, and it feels very different. And I think the very few people, because it's a very difficult topic to approach with young people for a variety of reasons. It's, but it's a very difficult topic to approach with anybody, absolutely, to be honest. Ab absolutely, but you know, in this case, they, it's, it's even more complex. But sometimes they offer, you know, maybe at the end of the conversation, they offer a little bit of insight, you know, uh, maybe a bit of record. And there is actually the sense that pornography has its own pleasure. 
And uh, I mean, we know there is this pathology where uh, young men that are perfectly able and uh, are simply not able to have an erection in front of a real woman simply because it's three-dimensional. So uh, this seems to be a surrogate and it becomes, as I said, his own source of pleasure. But also I think something else that happens there about cruelty is what we see in the genre of pornography, the kind of proliferation of uh, violence. And again, I think I was talking to somebody in the med medical field and they were telling me how pregnancy is down, but vag vaginal tearing is up. And that's really fascinating because if you look at porn, is and especially the genre of porn, they all present this extreme violence. Almost a cruelty toward the body of somebody else, but a cruelty that I wouldn't imagine that people will do in real life. Or, well, actually they probably do if there's vaginal tearing, but I think there's in overall there is a sense that if you see it, and if you see it with a sense of disembodiment, it's kind of okay. And it doesn't contrast with your uh, very meta-level awareness of genre, or gender, sorry, with the, your awareness of gender. Um, and I think, again, in that you have a bit of a perverse dichotomy. So people that can contemplate things that are so different within the same uh, unified self. Yes. So if I, if I think about uh, possibly not the actual experience of, of teenagers discovering sex over the millennium, because, well, we know there's, a, we know there's like a strong agricultural bent to how people learn, you know, so you learn by watching farm animals or kind of the circle of life around you. But if, if we go to that highly romanticized, you know, kind of 50s, 60s, 70s view of, of teenage sexuality, um, there was sort of that ideal that you were just sort of experimenting of, to figure out what felt good. Mm. If it felt good, you do more. Mm. And if it didn't feel good, you, mm. you do less. Mm. And instead, we have a generation who were first exposed to sex in, in a way that inherently is violent, mm. cruel, and sees people not in pleasure but in pain, but marketed as pleasure. And so this crossover uh, kind of effect between, mm. between pleasure and pain. Uh, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but it goes back to, I guess, that, that point of re-embodiment of detachment to feeling. Mm. Um, and yeah, but I think actually this, I think this tension, I think you pointed out before, and I, I think you're very correct, this tension between uh, feeling and not feeling and apathy and detachment and cruelty is something that we definitely see. And I, when I say definitely see is the combination of what we observe in culture and what we hear firsthand when we research and understand and try to understand generation poetry through our interview. The, literally, you, you observe that. I think understanding the implication of that, I think is much harder. And I think in a way is a little bit the general aim of the generation poetry project. I think it's something that has not been codified quite as yet. And I think it's something where questions need to be raised. And again, it goes back to generation poetry game of hide-and-seek with all the generation. Um, they present themselves as very meta and, and very uh, woke, and definitely they are. But in this presentation, there is a, a exclusion of, and it's palpable for me when I interview uh, generation poetry, this 
a bit alienation from the wild side, a little bit of this alienation from the deep desire. And to me, there's a little bit of tension there that, well, actually probably more than a little bit of tension, that it's there to be, maybe not reconciled, but to be transcended and create maybe new form of pleasure. Maybe, and we know that how much pleasure drives making of life, right? You know, artists, one could claim, cannot do anything else but create out of their drive. If we do, we can call it pleasure or drive interchangeably. And, and I think in that conversation it will happen. And it's really difficult to entertain this type of conversation because it's where they hide. So it's reasonably easy to entertain conversation where they are out in the open. So the meta level, the responsibility, the ascetism. Climate change. There's, which is very legitimate, yeah, you know, exactly. it's almost like uh, it's a generation that has encountered what Freud called Mr. Reality. And they, they have to, because there's so many real problems that they have no option but meeting Mr. Reality. But they kind of leave behind Mr. Pleasure. And when I say Mr. Pleasure, I mean the visceral drive, I mean the lust, I mean the cruelty, the things that happen in our groin and belly. And, but of course, they're not left behind. As you know, the conversation we had is they're emerging in perverted way. I think this is just, in my mind, a picture that I'm painting, not a, there's not an attempt in what I'm saying to fix it. And freak out or uh, condone it is literally saying, we see that happening. And that is, I think, below cultural awareness. And I think it's because generation poetry hides it. It's not what we are, I don't think it's where the, their conversa conversation are. I think it does happen, but I think the conversation are not on there. The conversation are on reality. But again, that doesn't mean that those human drives are gone. They have to re-emerge, and they are emerging, in my opinion, with some perverted act, you know, as we said so far, the cruelty in sex or the cruelty in, uh, in social media. They might seem glitches to us, but they're significant glitches, you know, and I think mother like yourself of a generation poetry person are maybe wondering about uh, quite correctly about the role of women and you know how the, inter you know, the interplay between sexes happen and the objectification of women. But that is the part where I think generational poetry is having a conversation. So it shouldn't be your concern at all. You shouldn't be worried about that. What I think is more, not worrying, but certainly require more conversation is uh, lust and cruelty. It's almost actually, we would want to have a forum to talk of lust and cruelty. And in fact, it's actually something that in... Uh, the following research, because this is an ongoing project for us, it will actually probably become part of my conversation with Generation Poetry, with our conversation of Generation Poetry. And maybe to a certain extent, we could promote and try to understand it through making, you know, through actually looking at the desire of Generation Poetry as they are uh, expressing, for example, through art, or for example, through, so not necessarily to language, through poetry, in fact, mm -hmm. and trying to kind of pay attention to that and maybe have the chance to discuss something that culturally we don't want to discuss, they don't want to discuss, but is happening. That's, I suppose, is what I'm saying when I say I'm just painting a picture. I'm not trying to wait in any way. Great. So 
we've gone from kindness and happiness and pleasure to lust and cruelty and it made complete sense to me perversion uh, it made complete sense <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the same line it is all in the same yeah. line and we cannot just decide to look at what we like we need to look at it at all i agree